Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Politics of Gender, the only show on YouTube where someone mansplains and womansplains what it means to be a man and a woman through the lens of Ivan Illich, our boy, this uh, particular book club. How you doing, Maria? Uh, very tired. Sleepy. Yes. This is a tough part. Sorry, about... guys. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm really excited to talk about the, the end of the book. I really enjoyed the last chapter. That was, well, there's a lot of gold nuggets at the very end. Totally. Yeah, and just to um, recollect a little bit, we are in the middle of a book club that's trying to get a particular thinker's uh, work on gender. We've been doing this periodically. We did this Butler. We're going to do it with other people like Zizek, I hope. Um, but right now, stalling here on Illich to talk about really an underdeveloped, or not underdeveloped, but like a um, thinker that hasn't really been appreciated as much for his influence mm -hmm. within the current discussion of gender. Um, I think readers by now can see why he doesn't really fit with a lot of the basic narratives on right. gender and gender equality. Um, yeah, he doesn't fit nicely into the right or the left. No, that's so for sure. So he just gets left out. Yeah, he's not, you can't really use him well as a weapon. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and speaking of which, we're actually going to start not by praising him, but by a little bit of a critique. Because we left yes. this part because, in my mind, Illich ends up with a kind of disappointing conclusion on the origins of what he calls economic sex. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify once more, if you're just dropping in, Illich has this concept that all of human societies prior to the modern period were governed by something he calls gender, which is asymmetrical governance of the world by men and women. Um, so it's a, it's a real uh, difference and distinction in which men and women are not simply seen as virgins of the same type, as modes of the human being, as uh, sort of a sexed um, version of a fundamentally androgynous human nature, but in fact, as two distinct members of the human family that have their own authority and domain to occupy so that there's a certain lack of envious comparison and competition and um, fighting really between men and women. Not that this relate, not that this um, gendered world is without um, abuse, without evil hierarchy, without problems mm -hmm. by any means. Um, but it was just to, People understood men and women as operating within two different worlds, and so you couldn't compare them as being genderless and exactly the same. Yeah, whereas in modernity, we seem to have reduced that entirely to the bathroom. Yeah. And so the last of our fights is over the bathroom, That's as really we mentioned before. <laughs> I know, we're just toilet people. <laughs> Who would have thunk? Um so he has this, I think, a very brilliant and compelling case. You might disagree mm -hmm. with him on the details, but the truth of the matter is that there has been a fundamental shift in the way we view sexual difference. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I always like to ask when I look at transgenderism and um, ideas of gender fluidity and such is, okay, you can critique it for this or that reason, but why is it so apparently um, consumable? Why does it just sort of fit with our world? And I think what Illich provides is a way of saying, no, 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 this fits with our world because, um, <laughs> because we're actually built to appear to ourselves as androgynous, as economic neuters, as he calls it. And I think that's really important for two reasons, which I'll give. One, I think that a lot of the times, Americans especially, and Western liberals generally, 
are very motivated by the spirit of rebellion wherever they can find it. And gender theory, gender critical theory, especially has this kind of vision of itself as being on the side of the oppressed over and against a tyrannical force that's prescribing a certain way of being a body and saying, right. no, 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 all, all of this is un, has nothing to do with nature. This is just a construction of power saying that you have to live in this certain way. Um, and so that puts the person who can be differently identified, who can be queer, who can sort of break with these norms within the exalted position of the rebel um, within our society, which is just what we want. It's what we've wanted since the... Not to say that it's an easy position, but it's the lauded position. It is. It's, a it's position what our movies are about. Sense. Yeah. 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 And I don't, and I don't think they're always wrong. I think in fact, one of the things we're hoping to point out through Illich is that there really is a tyrannical construction going on. It's just not necessarily the one okay. that we think of immediately. Yeah. Um, because what we tend to do, I think in modernity is have this seamless line from like, well, what all the Christians and medievals and church people and ancients thought up until now when we are throwing off all of that oppression that yeah like it's the all the narrative. same is that what you're getting at well no 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 just like that there's a it's like a twofold m movement it's like well what modern people do is we reject all of that old stuff and that old stuff is always the same so even if right. it's like the victorian kind of fussiness about gender or mm -hmm. it's the medieval sort of uh, you know clear and distinct roles and worlds uh, you know or the christian understanding whatever it is like it's all just the same it's all the old stuff yeah so we shirk it off we we get rid of it um and what illich is pointing out is is that no there's a transition prior to this moment mm -hmm. that it gets totally missed there is a certain world right and it's not the case that the gendered world is what's being rebelled against right now because right, prior right. to our current rebellion you have a transition in which that gendered world is destroyed and what's put in its place is a certain androgynous ideal of the human person who now wears sex like a pair of shorts <laughs> or gloves. I think I'm supposed to say gloves. <laughs> who who wears wears his sex as a certain modification of of a fundamental sameness, a kind of um, uh, right. neuter um, uh, anthropology, you might say. And it's important because the the rebellion against um, against that is something I think a Catholic even can validate, mm -hmm. right? It's like insofar as what we're describing as like normal male female uh, um, or, or male female norm, if it really is what Illich is saying, then we should be sort of repulsed by it in some ways, right? So if you're saying right. like, oh, I don't want to be this, it's very obvious that you're just saying that this fundamentally um, – economic being is modified through you know hormones or or through um having a different role in society to be what's viewed as this substantively different person but that's not really true um that seems to be something that i would at least get on board with and be like yeah yeah i mean we we tend to i mean it makes sense we tend to assume that what's normal for us what we assume i mean as kind of like our myth Mm -hmm. uh, of what the human person is, is also what people used to think. And so we look at injustices today, and then we look at injustices happening in the, the 1200s, and the thought process is, well, obviously the same, the same thing was happening, the same thought was happening, it was just worse. Right. Totally. It was just a larger scale. But then what Illich is pointing out is that the way 
people conceived of men and women is just so fundamentally different. Yeah. There is this um, kind of, I think he calls it uh, broken gender. Yeah. Is that it? Like a, a period of the movement from the gendered domains into economic sex. Um, and so it's kind of weird because you have, there's overlap. You have mm -hmm. both going on at the same time. Um, but but yeah, what, what people are rebelling against today is not actually the thing that was happening in the 1200s. Right, totally. Um, and I've, I've just experienced that pattern with multiple things uh, looking back on the past, like just basic concepts of words that we assume were the same over the time but really aren't. I mean, I think that's why the Catholic social teaching encyclicals are so difficult to read because we just assume that all the words mean what they mean today. Yeah, right, right, right. And we're doing the same thing with gender. Yeah, it seems like Illich would look at our gender equality fights and say, okay, what we are fighting about today is how does a substantively similar being, how, how is that being equally represented? How does that being get the same amount of uh, compensation for their labor? Um, it's, it's a matter of equality between two functionally similar things. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, he's arguing that th there's no comparison. What's being discussed here is two distinct domains of which men and women were the authorities respect respectively and mm -hmm. which they weren't competing for some common, um, uh, I was going to say common good, but that's not quite right, is it? In which they weren't competing for some uh, sexless ideal, genderless ideal that was uh, between them. Um, and that does seem to be right. I mean, if you read just medieval literature, the idea of a envy for each other's world or rather an view of like, I want everything that a man has and a man should want everything that a woman has unto a certain equality. Mm -hmm. uh, it just got, doesn't seem present. He's got a fantastic example of this in the last chapter, yeah. but I think we want to wait to get there. Okay. Right? Cause we were going to critique the guy because he has all this brilliance and he mm -hmm. has this great way of shaking up the narrative so that you no longer have to be like, well, I'm either, I'm either one of them stodgy male, female guys, or I'm one of those cool gender fluid guys. It's like, well, you can actually be a cool male, female guy or a stodgy gender fluid guy because his <laughs> argument is that like industrial capitalism is the gender fluid guys. So it's anyways, but the point is despite all of this, uh, excitement, when he looks around for a real, like what made this move? Yeah. How do we start moving into broken gender, into economic sex? His answer is the church. The church, yeah. I mean, he has a sort of causal argument that really he's lifting from uh, Foucault in his history of sexuality. And, and that's fine. It's just I, I'm disappointed a little bit because, you know, Ivan doesn't usually just lift things. Um, and this really does feel like a, a repetition. But... Uh, I think it would be best to kind of to give his argument um, first by discussing broken gender, so we're clear on that definition, and then by going into his blaming of the church for the move into um, economic sex, which is, he says, irredeemably sexist. Mm -hmm. So broken gender is the idea that uh, the church at some point and the society at large um, reduced the space for genuinely gendered domains and authority. The argument is not that they were obliterated the way they are within modern capitalism. The argument is that you basically had households that were the same um, separation between the sexes, a female domain, a male domain, real authority, real difference, the dance of the two that we've discussed. 
but that the church was beginning to rule those households as also sexless or genderless units. So for instance, one of the examples he uses is that where there used to be gendered rents that were expected from each household, where the male would give what was proper to male work to the Lord as his rent, the mm -hmm. female would give what was proper to female work as her rent. Uh, now there, this was translated into a genderless um, means of exchange, AKA money, and the household itself gave its genderless offering. And um, so not only the society, but the church as a whole seemed to then take a view of the soul as being genderless in some way. Um, so one thing I wasn't, I wasn't quite yeah. sure if he was saying, um, so, so I, I remember he's talking about one critique where you start as, as soon as you start using money more, mm. especially in terms of taxes, this changes how you perceive the household, how you perceive the members of the household. Mm -hmm. This is happening at the same time that the church is confessional. Yeah. But it's not, it's just kind of, it's the same cultural moment, but yes. it's not that the church's mistake, according to his understanding, comes first. This is just simultaneously happening, yeah. was my impression. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think okay. the, um, the taxing thing comes much earlier, if I recall. But it's also important to realize that Illich is not making the mistake that moderns make, which is to look for the church in the medieval age, as opposed to, say, who's taxing who or who's you know paying rents to who. It's like... The presumption of the Middle Ages is that everything was the church. Everyone was the church, and they were yeah. all governed by churchy type things, like churchy things. <laughs> so, it, it, that being the case, I think it's a it's a more general, and, and maybe that's one of his, maybe that's one of the reasons I don't like it is because he'll switch from that, which seems like the right attitude, to suddenly blaming the priests as if like they're the church and everything else is just like the otherwise organically yeah, locally the, developing the society. Church. Yeah. Um, but before we get into that, I just want, mm -hmm. I just want us to understand his vision. He's saying there's about 500 years in which, uh, 500 years of broken gender, where he's saying that there was this sort of theoretical centralized model in which, um, the church and larger institutions of society are, are essentially judging the genderless family unit as the proper political unit, as the as the object of their care, as he'll say. He's got a, sorry, I just have to interrupt. There's a great footnote on page 167. Um, it's titled The Civilization of Broken Gender. Okay. He says, well into the Middle Ages, the marriage tie still did not aim directly at the creation of a couple. And so what he is meaning by that, that's part of the move into the economic sex. So you have marriage being understood as, like you have two sides of the gender domain being like tied together mm -hmm. and this not. And then when you get to the economic sex, it's just these two individuals that are yeah, kind of yeah. making a contract together. And then he continues on and says, the wedding uh, knitted what were often elaborate ties between the members of two kinship groups, their holdings, their status, and their offspring. This kind of marriage took a bewildering variety of forms. It fostered subsistence and strengthened the peasant's ability to resist the demands of king and lord. Um, I really like that last line, and I think, um, I, yeah, I, I think when you when you are paying taxes and a gendered form what that inevitably means that the way that the king or lord is forced to deal with you is in a much more particular mm. way mm -hmm. there's no avoiding it and when you're 
dealt with particularly, there's a lot less control that you can have yeah, totally. over that person. If someone's just a number, like you can organize numbers easily and move them around, make them do what you want. But if someone is like a particular household or has particular goods, they're just they're just not as controllable. And so that kind of culture just made households that the the kings and the lords just couldn't control. It's not possible for them to control in the same way. Right, right. And his next sentence, I think, shows the alternative vision that he sees as typical of marriages in the regime of broken gender. A new type of marriage that appeared during the 11th century aimed directly at the creation of a tie between the two gendered co-producers of rent. Whew. Brutal. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, it's a bit one-sided, you know, it's like, because mm -hmm. the other thing that's happening here is the church is um, simultaneously inventing, constructing, as it were, the idea of marriage for love out of, um, so, so <laughs> what I mean is there's a way to describe this that sure sounds like that yeah <laughs> but there's a whole nother way of describing that's like well part of the difficulty of marriage being a means of exchange between kinship groups is that what is lost in some ways is the person right and right. love for the person and you could describe really the history of modernity as the gradual and not not modernity just history as the gradual unveiling of the uniqueness and importance of the person Mm -hmm. Right now we're in an age where we're actually sometimes sounds like we're critical of this because what has been totally neglected is that precisely because he's a social creature, mm -hmm. is he also so valuable uniquely as a person? This is a dynamism between society and, and individual that can't be scraped. But right. I think that um, in in some way, Illich is just ignoring that whole narrative here. Yeah. So if we keep going with the footnote yeah. he says the the church elevates the mutual agreement consensus into a sacrament and the couple becomes a sacred institution um so like what he's describing is the development of like the the doctrine the teaching the sacrament of marriage and how that's understood within the church and you can take a his kind of cynical view or you could think of what the church is doing is is almost highlighting or bringing forward an element that was always there from the beginning. Yeah. Um, no, and that's one of the things. I mean, it's it hard to, to forefront to our attention. Yeah, and it's hard to um, take this totally seriously when you have like the scriptural and early patristic understandings of marriage as being a lot. I mean, if you think about the entire metaphor of the bride and the church, um, right. or, or rather, Christ and the church being the bridegroom and the bride. And the, and the kind of how much more that was present in such, you know, such an earlier time, um, which can only really have its full meaning and it can only really have been used by people like St. Paul in the way that it's used if there was an emphasis on the uniqueness, on love, on sacrifice, on unity of a whole. Like if you're going to describe Christ and his marriage to the church as a... Um, I'm going to use his words here as the creation of a tie between the two gendered co-producers of rent um, rather than something like um, personal ecstasy between two people. I think you would have a hard time understanding most of the patristic tradition. So it just seems like he's sort of picking right, and says choosing that This a bit. is something that happens later on and it's like almost a mistake of the church when you find that theology there 
right at the beginning in the Patrician. It just has tradition. earlier precedence. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's a, maybe a mistake based on um, how they're doing it, based on what was 50 years prior, but 500 years prior, maybe. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. a, this is what's troublesome and difficult about historical arguments is that they're so like they all can kind of make sense like well that causes this and this causes that and you can kind of walk down the line and then it's not that it's wrong it's just that you can do another genealogy that says well no this caused that and that caused that mm -hmm. and so like, well that sounds like it's likely too and it's oh yeah it's or very you difficult just zoom to, out more and yeah. then the thing that you notice is still true but now it means something different yeah. now that it's in a bigger picture yeah well, and we'll try to get to that i think so illich's argument um, is I think best put on 153, and I'm just going to read it um, to make it clear. And his argument is this is the, the sort of ecclesiastical change that created the genderless person as the true unit of society um, and began the destruction of gendered worlds. Um, and he says that it was through the invention of a pastor who had standardized care over souls. And this is where he's getting a lot of Foucaultian stuff. So I will read it. The medieval shift from Orthodox faith to Catholic behavior. And whenever he says Catholic behavior, he's being pejorative. He means like universalizing behavior usually. Uh, the conversion of priests from men de deputed, deputed? I don't know how to say that. De I think that's right. <laughs> deputed to liturgical service, turning them into pastors and, confessed, and confessors of a flock standardized the two sexes. For the pastor, now represented by the image of the celibate cock on the steeple, was watching over a flock that included two sexes. He goes on. He's in charge. Well, he calls him the prototype of the service professional, which is his <laughs> biggest diss. The pastor is in charge of souls and equipped with the language to read their consciousnesses. Consciences, sorry. All the souls under his responsibility he is taught are of equal dignity and possess consciences to be examined and formed. This was a new and rising church. Um, and he says, this new law, he's talking about the Lateran Council, which imposed on, the, uh, he says, Lateran Council imposed on all the faithful of the church the duty of telling their sins once a year to their own parish priest. This new law had been introduced with an original formula reflecting a novel perspective, the homogenizing perspective of sex. Omnis utriusque, utriusque, sexus fidelis. All the faithful men as well as women are henceforth held to speak every year to their appointed pastor and reveal their sins. Um, to enable the pastor to listen to these confessions, a new literature had come into being during the preceding century. Manuals advised the confessor on the sorts of questions to ask the faithful. Increasingly, the new manuals defined this transgression meant for humans in general, independent and sometimes contradictory to the local gender line. By restricting power, privilege, and ordination to men, church law was not sexist. It simply reflected its sources. Church law did pioneer sexism by ruling on the consciences of equally immortal souls, capable of committing the same sin with different bodies. By equating in terms of sin the transgressions of the same law by both men and women, it laid the foundation for sexist codes. Okay. That's basically the argument. I mean, he gives it a few more times in, in, in different ways. Men and women become equals in sin, for instance, on the next page. Um, so what I want to do is this. I want to try to describe the argument, if mm -hmm. that's fair. And then I want to describe what I think is like the best version of it, which is not necessarily what Illich means at this point in time. Right. Okay. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. So the argument is essentially that 
within gender domains, there is real distinction. Okay, there are things, stuff, tools, words, times, places that are for men and vice versa for women. Mm -hmm. These are asymmetric worlds that can't simply be ordered as like a comparative thing, nor can um, one be swapped out for the other. Right. So okay. then if men and women transgress, they're always going to transgress as men and women within those domains. Right. But then as soon as you have uh, a church and uh, a little manual telling you this is the penance that goes to this sin, yeah. then you're treating all transgressions as if they're being done by genderless persons. It totally. doesn't matter who comes into the confessional. You commit this sin, well, like, say these prayers. Yeah. And Illich is contrasting this with what previously he's called probity. Now, probity is like conscience. It's like morality. It has a certain similarity to that, that idea. But what, what makes probity distinct, probity distinct is that it is the sense of breaking with what is proper to your men or what is breaking what is proper to your women. So again, we have to go back to the bathroom example because it's the only one we have and we have to just cling to the toilet as best <laughs> as we're able. Because what he's saying is you were filled with what we might call a shame because we don't know anything else, but he would say it's not even shame. Shame is related to something different. But you're filled with a sense of violating what is proper to the authority and domain of your gendered world, right? That this is transgression within within the gendered world. This is probity. So there. Yeah, so he's not really talking about sin. It's just like the embarrassment of, oh, this is not the right space. Yes. I do not belong here. I need to get out now. <laughs> yeah. And you're governed by others because, I mean, and we still have this, right? Like we all govern each other, especially at a younger age before we realize that, you know, we're all just individuals and need to treat each other exactly the same. We all naturally end up governing each other on the, on the playground or whatever. Like, well, that's not what guys do, or that's not what girls do. And of course this leads to all sorts of problems, but it's obviously welling up from within kids. They don't have to really be taught much <laughs> to do this, but he's saying that you had a whole system of, of coercion, of the governance of behavior, of, of, of guilt and forgiveness and, and all this happening simply in relation to, the, the gendered domains. And he's arguing that what the church is doing is getting rid of that by saying, um, no sin is sin. It doesn't matter who commits it. And it is um, experienced in relation to a universal law that applies equally to men and women for which there are universal um, solutions, penances. Um, and yeah, there, so, that's sort of, that's my summary of it. I, I'm still not entirely clear if what he is upset is that so, – so in each society, they're going to have their own constructions on what is proper to men yes. and women. And when – is he just saying when the church comes in, she disregards these things? Yeah, totally. And she just universalizes transgressions? Yes. And it's almost like she, she like wipes them out and stamps them out. And the only transgression that becomes like the real transgression is the sin, which is sexless and belongs to everyone. Yep. The, the consecrated male, the priestly judge, listens each year to a genderless soul, measuring its transgressions of a written law. So uh, he has this, this vision of the churches destroying what was before um, and then the vision of a kind of self-immolating or self-sacrificial thing that the conf the one who confesses does, he enters into the confessional, goes into this mode of relation to the priest, 
in which he has to leave his gender at the door, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that this is actually a sort of training in genderlessness um, in the breaking down of those worlds. Um, yeah. And again, this is what Foucault says, really. Right. Which is, day. which, I mean, if, if, if you're right, it would make sense because those, those kinds of cultural practices, I mean, when, when we engage culturally in practices of leaving gender at the door, like really pretending like it's absolutely irrelevant then then it starts to actually become that way. And yeah. that's how social change moves. So it's not, yes. I, I see what, what he's going for. Yes. Okay. So here's what I want to say. He's right. And I don't know about the time and the place exactly like in which times and in which places. I mean, he's very, being very broad about this, mm-hmm. but I want to speak both from like a personal perspective and then what I know of the history here. The church in recent times, especially since the Second Vatican Council, has opposed almost universally what we call the manual tradition. Um, Which he references. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you read someone like Aquinas, you have maybe like the opposite. It's where you have this very rich vision of human sin and human redemption, where it is couched within this whole narrative Mm -hmm. in which we are either participating in the city of man or the city of God in which we have by sinning, um, we are rejecting God and his rule over us and our whole societies. Uh, it's part of the history of salvation. It's why God died for us. There, there's a, I mean, I'm just picking and choosing here, but it's a rich totality of mm-hmm. the story. Yeah. Sin isn't just transgression against the law. Yes. It's something that's fit inside an entire narrative and context. It's, fit inside of uh like a social ascent or a social descent and so you can't just limit it to transgression right right and in fact the whole story of christianity is is a certain freedom from that freedom from the law where we are not simply under a legal code Um, we are actually invited into a personal relationship with christ and it is through that um that personal relationship and his salvific act that we are redeemed such that the confessional becomes in truth um, a participation in his salvific act. So if you think about the Bible, you have Jesus giving the power uh, to forgive sins to his disciples, and you have the um, command that we confess our sins to one another. So right from the very beginning, there is a sense that Mm -hmm. it's not simply um, there's a code, there's the violation of it, there's the coercion of sinners back into line. Um, Rather, all of that is subordinated to um, the personal relationship with Christ. So the um, an offense, a sin, becomes much more a offense against someone. It's an injustice against someone. It's a relational problem, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're excommunicated every time you sin in, well, in a literal sense, you're excommunicated, you're out of communion, both with your neighbor and with God. And so the point about confession is to enter deeper into communion, into the city of God, to build up your society together as you become more and more conformed to the heavenly kingdom that Christ wants to build. Okay. Right. So I guess uh, like an analogy we could think about is uh, the family. So you could have a very like truncated vision of what's going on when like a child misbehaves, like, oh, like, he like broke the the family rule yeah, and now yeah. he's antagonistic against the father. Um, but what is really going on is that you have like this very rich 
uh, like dynamic family rhythm that's like oriented towards the whole family flourishing and enjoying life together. And what's actually happening is a disruption in that, that fruitful life giving pattern. It's not just merely, Oh, he made his dad angry. Totally. And the problem with the manual tradition, we're going to describe as such is that it takes the perspective of the sinner and then kind of makes it the perspective of the confessor. What I mean is that when you are, out of that rhythm when right. you are willfully turning your back on the relationship then it does appear mm-hmm. that all of these um things you should do and should not do are simply this extrinsic legal code because that's precisely what it means is that you have extrinsified you have removed yourself from the relationship and when you remove yourself from a relationship all it looks like is code mm-hmm. all it looks like is law and ultimately is- <laughs> arbitrary law I mean, that's that's the perspective of every like, grade schooler ever. Totally. Like, this is so ridiculous. Right. I don't understand these rules. And then all of a sudden, like, you become the teacher and everything makes sense to you. Right. Oh, I, I see that all these things are necessary, not for those isolated, uh, like, cases, right. but for the whole thing to function together. Yeah, or like as a father, you know, I remember the rebellions of my youth as being against a certain like perceptively unreasonable code Mm -hmm. or something. Um, But then I only realize now becoming a father, (laughs) how lightly I hold any rules I have. It's like, I don't, I don't care about the rules. I'm simply using them functionally in order to help the child live in peace and grow up and become virtuous. Like, so as a child, you take the rules more seriously than the adult takes the rules. Yeah. <laughs> you're confused because you're not wise yet. You're still yeah. sinful. Anyways, the manual tradition does seem to at least have lent itself to um, a perversion within our moral understanding that emphasized the sinner's relation to sin rather than the confessor's relation to sin. So it kind of comes from the angle, as it were, of man in his sin and not God in his redemptive act, um, such that it can become like a purity ritual almost where your confessing is simply that you have a certain number of marks on your soul and you need them to be cleared. It has a kind of monetary exchange factor. So you go in and you do the thing, you get, you confess your sins, you feel the relief of forgiveness um, and you exchange for that forgiveness, a certain penance as it Mm -hmm. were. Um, And that this isn't associated with any dynamic movement, um, outside of kind of more rote formulas of agreeing to do better Mm -hmm. uh that rather the sinner is is sort of forgiven and um this is presumed to put him back into the same place like he's back to square one Mm -hmm. he's gonna get dirty again and then we'll have to go back to be cleaned he's gonna get hurt again and he'll have to be healed he'll you know what i mean like there's a certain um there's not the sense of ascent. There's just the sense of, of repetition. And then there's the sense that the code is what is most vital. So right. the manual itself, while I do not think intending to do this, like I think it was just supposed to help people like know the law of the church <laughs> and know like the basic, you know, basics of right and wrong. But when it was taken literally as like, these are the sins, they're in this book. These are the penances, they're in this book. Um, and human beings are very prone to literalizing things. Right. Uh, you can see how this could tend to a sort of perversion, which mm-hmm. again, the church, especially in figures like, you know, our latest popes have, has rejected and moved on. Um, the point is that it can really be a perversion mm-hmm. and that needs to be, to be acknowledged, but it would be too much to simply say, well, Illich is right about 
this perverse time, but we got better. We got over that because it's not, it's not just the case that like the church is making mistakes. The people are the church. Yes. The yeah. priests are the, are from the families that are then being governed by this mode of confession. So what I mean to say is, especially now we have the tendency to think of the church as like this centralized agency, like a big nonprofit with a Pope at the top and he sort of disseminates things down. Um, and to the degree that's false now, it's so much more false with the middle ages mm -hmm. where you just didn't have the capacity even for that kind of centralized stuff. I mean, when we're talking about the church doing something, we are talking about an eminently local practice. Mm -hmm. We're talking about parish life. Yeah. With centralized moves, like you're getting directives from your bishop, of course, but the actual en enacting of it is happening on, on the ground level, yeah, it's... which means to some extent, this tradition must have fit and made sense and been a part of the very worlds that are enacting it themselves. It's the very priests and religious who are coming from the very families who are living in these gendered domains who are then in some way enacting what Illich is critiquing. Mm -hmm. And maybe all I'm, what, what I'm, all I'm really saying is like, you can rag on the manual tradition, but you can certainly also see like a child or someone with an addiction or someone in a, just a moral place at which the manual tradition is the best that they can attain to. And it's the belief of the church that the grace goes way beyond our intentions, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe this person comes into the confessional looking for a purity ritual. Maybe the priest has a manual and he's not considering anything beyond breaks in the legal code that he must rectify with his pastoral power. Maybe, I mean, that sounds unlikely, but maybe that's what's mm -hmm. happening. But the point is that what the church is, is it administers a grace, the love of God, that is actually what's efficacious in the forgiveness of sins. And it goes way beyond their intentions. It has a healing process that actually brings you up out of addiction, out of, you know, panic sort of ritual purity uh, traps that you might be in. And I just don't think, and you've said this before, but I don't think Illich believes in grace. Yeah, that, that was going to be one of my main critiques of what he was saying about confession, because as soon as you believe that what's happening in the confessional is actually supernatural, I mean, you, you're going to have like two flawed people entering into this act of confession, but the thing that's actually working is God's grace. And if you have that perspective, that automatically changes the way you understand what's going on there. Um, and, and I also really liked your, your point about, yeah, it, it's, it's as if people d don't see that the, the church is the people, mm -hmm. um, the church comes from the people. So I could see either one of, or two things happening. Um, something is happening culturally, uh, a shift is happening culturally in the very people's understanding or theology or philosophy of God, um, or, or, or life in general that is producing the kinds of people that are tending towards the manual tradition. Mm -hmm. Like there's something like wrong with society mm -hmm. that's going to produce people doing and thinking in these kinds of ways. Yeah. Or you could even, or you could see it as in, uh, perhaps, uh, this was what was necessary for those people 
that uh i mean like goodness the the more complex dynamic picture i mean it's just difficult to understand and certainly i didn't understand it as a as a child like as a child you understand things almost through a manual totally. tradition yeah um and i mean what you see in in scripture is like a society of people slowly being taught about the nature of god and yeah. the nature of salvation and not every social order can see the whole picture totally. as equally well yeah and it kind of helps to explain what we said earlier about like there's actually way more of the stuff in the patri patristic tradition um but then that leads to the question well if it's in the patristic tradition how do we have this genealogy of it like all going bad in the middle ages and well the, the point is that it's um not a strict line of genealogy that's sort of an enlightenment presumption it's rather cycles mm -hmm. it's it's getting better and getting worse i mean this is all hinging on human freedom so you can have you know genealogy is hard when you're a christian because it depends on how holy people are being in any given instance what's going to apply um yeah i guess my my question for illich would be okay so if what what changed and what happened was the church's manualist tradition like yeah. where did that come from because i wasn't always around so it's not just the church yeah. because the church has been around for much longer so from what kind of culture did this this come out of is this just the natural end of how theology goes and the manual tradition has come and gone so how do you what do you make of that yeah if only he were around um, I did have another critique of of uh, his take on the confession, if we're ready to move yeah, to that. Yeah, go for it. Um, which is, it, it seems kind of one-sided. So he he looks at the manual tradition and of, uh, like, the, the confessor's gaze upon the penitent. And he's saying that this is uh, a sexless gaze, and therefore the confession is an ungendered experience but if you think about being the penitent that you have absolutely the opposite experience it's very gendered like where do you go to confession like you go to the church which we always understand as being mother church so you go to the womb of the church you go into the confessional and who do you speak to someone who is called father like you, the penitent, are not having a genderless experience. You're totally. going as your gender, confessing your sins like to your parents, yeah. really, and experiencing forgiveness from the father uh, through the figure of this this priest. And so, it yeah, it just seems like a very one-sided critique yeah. that I I don't I don't see how he misses that. Yeah, and sim in a similar sense, you know. You have to deal with the Gospels, or the, or at least the letters of Saint Paul, saying things like, um, you know, there's neither man nor woman in Christ Jesus, um, as one of the sort of operative distinctions of society. So is it, is he just saying that? Um, what what I mean to say is, it it seems like there is a there is a kind of negation of the gendered world that isn't the kind of negation that he's claiming, mm -hmm. which is that. Um, in sin, we and in redemption, we really are both objects of Christ's redemption. Like confession, really is for both of us. So it mm -hmm. does have, in some sense, from the very beginning of Christianity, a common message. 
Uh, in fact, this is part of what makes Christianity unique is that it's common to men and women and it's, and, and it's outreach. It's like, it's for all of us. It's not for the men, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the big Roman critiques about it. It's a religion for women and slaves. Right. <laughs> so, so I just think that there's a, a certain, um, reaching out to both that is proper to the church as mother, as you described, that isn't a negation of both into a genderless unit. And yeah, I do think and, you experience that in confession. And I think that kind of makes sense with, with that analogy because it's uh, like the mother and the father, like working for the sake of her children and children aren't sexless, but they're not entirely incorporated into the gender world sure. either. Yeah. They kind of occupy like a third, not quite their space. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, it seems appropriate that you, the penitent are approaching as child and maybe it's not exactly how he's reading it. Well, it does seem like in all sin, there's a certain genderlessness and this will be something that's more brought up when we discuss some of my dissertation further, but I think people can get an intuitive grasp of this, right? Like if it means something to be a man and if it's part of um, human flourishing to fulfill that particular nature. So I'm being an excellent man. I'm being um, the best man I can be or whatever. And similarly, if it's true of women that there's, I'm being, as I was created, I'm, I'm trying to perfect my nature. And it's, mm -hmm. Then any kind of movement against that, any kind of movement against human nature, which is just what we describe sin as, is like violence against our nature, is inevitably going to be a sin against that part of our nature against sexual difference. Um, you're going to get a sort of rejection of the particularity of the person in right. favor of some more uh, general drive satisfaction. Um, so for instance, like Augustine will describe all sin as becoming more like the beasts. So actually moving down the kind of ladder, as it were, of sexual differentiation and becoming something less sexually differentiated. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, so when, when yeah. I violate my nature, I also violate my nature as woman, and so I remove myself more and more from the gender yeah. world, and so I am really kind of placing myself more and more like the level of an animal that don't construct these kinds of worlds. Yeah, totally. That's a really, really good way of putting it. Um, another thing Gesson says is that all sin is the movement of the soul into its own private domain. So there's a certain collapsing within sin of the socialness of the human creature. That's precisely the socialness that builds asymmetrical distinct worlds and, and loves the dance between them. Um, obviously if you're just in it for yourself in some way, it's hard to imagine that not also being a increasingly genderless, um, state of being. Um, but I think we're going to go into that a little more. So yeah, but, all in uh, all, a brief comment, just to swing it the other direction. Like I, I think that there's a certain hopefulness and, uh, in that kind of vision, because uh, when it comes to questions about like gender identity or feeling like you don't like fit into what it means to be masculine or feminine, part of what the church is saying is that if you just pursue holiness, if you mm. seek God first, you become more feminine, you become more masculine in the unique manifestation that that means for you. And it's not going to be the same for every man. It's not going to be the same for every woman, but I think yeah. it just takes a lot of burden off of our shoulders to have that kind of perspective. Like I don't have to have the mystery of what it means to be man and woman figured out. I just need to become holy. And by doing this, 
yeah. I become myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and it's mistaking what a human ideal is. It's like if it's true that we're constructing it and we're constructing ourselves and the whole world into a pleasing offering to God, then it's not like we can anticipate it by being like, okay, here's exactly how the ideal works, and now mm -hmm. let's do it. It's like it happens in retrospect. It's like by becoming holy, you just act for God, and then you construct the kind of woman and the kind of man that is pleasing to God. And it's unique. Like it's not. Uh, it could have been otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. It has a certain contingency to it because it's the product of freedom, um, which makes it really beautiful. It's like anyone who says, like, I know uh what the ideal man is and we need to conform to that vision of the ideal man is just not being christian at that point because the ideal man is always yet to come until mm -hmm. um yeah i mean it, the it's, heavens are rolled up yeah you're you're moving into a mystery like you don't have to have it figured out you don't have to have the ideal like perfectly like sketched out in order for you to to seek that i mean i really do think that ultimately like what it means to be man and woman is a mystery of god that only he can penetrate and part of the fun of this life is our seeking god and discovering what that particularly means in mm -hmm. us as it unfolds in our life drama yeah it should be a, an exciting thing because i don't have to determine what that means for right. me i get yeah. to discover what it means for me yeah, I think I think this is really obvious in the uh, lives of the saints, right? Because, okay, so the saints are held up as like the exemplars, and so presumably they're also the the ideal men, men and women mm -hmm. uh, on which to model our masculinity and femininity. But if you were to simply take any one saint and be like, here it is, so all men should be like this, it would be ridiculous because yeah. there's a saint right next to him that's <laughs> doing probably the opposite things with his yeah his manliness. <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, if we're all men like Jerome, it's going to be a cantankerous world. <laughs> but he was definitely a very manly guy. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. Anyways, okay, so that's sort of our basic critique of the genealogy that are used that the sort of centralized church power of confession created this genderlessness in the human soul. Um, though I do think that, again, it's fair to say that there is a way in which a perverse sort mm -hmm. of moral impoverishment that we call the manual yep. tradition does in fact create precisely the situation that Illich talks about. And we know it's true because it happens now. It's not just something in the past. It's like you can live out a sort of manual tradition life. Totally. Um, and you will certainly find yourself as a sort of uh, genderless um, law, law driven um, creature that, that lives in fear and um yeah i think i think that's right so i think he was right in a certain critique but then he overextends it mm -hmm. don't we all haven't we all been there okay so that's enough ripping on ivan because we love ivan ivan's the man and in chapter seven he proves this by yes being the man oh, everything about this chapter is amazing <laughs> so i would i would i mean you have to read the whole book to get to it so but i was gonna say if I could give you one chapter, just be like, just read this because he, he clarifies and really just resays a lot yeah. of, um, crucial claims and points in yeah, ways which that are I, way I clearer is, at the end than at the beginning. Is, is helpful because what he has to do in order to get there, because it's such a, 
a different way of thinking and seeing gender. He just has to give a lot of examples, yep. which is what we've seen over and over again. And so now he can get to the end and kind of wrap it up. Okay, so let's do it a little bit chronologically, and okay. we're going to say the things we like about it, and mm -hmm. hopefully, um, and and the discussion of village here. So. I'll read the first part of it. The purpose of this essay, the whole book, is not a history of gender, but the elaboration of concepts allowing us to distangle gender from sex within a history of scarcity. Um, he then goes on to restate his um, position on the church. And then at the bottom here, he says, gender blind historians describe this transition as a transition to a capitalist mode of production thereby hiding the fact that an ahistorical novum, something new, emerged from the mutation, a consumption-dependent producer who is necessarily sexist. Okay. When he describes gender-blind historians, he's basically describing people that would point to all the shifts without mentioning gender. Mm -hmm. For Illich, the destruction of gender is not a consequence of capitalism. It is not something that happens because capitalism happened. It's not an mm -hmm. effect. It's a cause. You cannot have capitalism without destroying gender, is what he's arguing. Now, you might, as a listener, have a particular definition of capitalism. And I have given to the Lord the attempt to define capitalism because everyone just says whatever they want. I had a guy tell me, I'm not lying. He was like, no, 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 you're wrong about capitalism because what capitalism is, is free exchange between consenting parties. It was like, oh, well, sweet, dude. If that's all that capitalism is, what's all the fuss about? What's with all the dead people and the wars and stuff over there? It's just like we're just free exchange between people that want to do free exchange. Sounds great. Easy peasy. Okay. So I'm not going to sit here and argue why his definitions of capitalism are good definitions of capitalism. I think they are. You probably, if you are the person I'm thinking of, you probably think they're not. <laughs> just take it as his definition because he's not just talking about whatever you want to insert into the word capitalism. He's talking about a thing. The thing is real. Yeah. Well, he's talking about like a historical economic phenomenon. Yeah. So I think what everyone can agree on is that like at some point there was a major shift mm -hmm. in the way that economy moved and uh, it wasn't just an economic shift. Um, there was huge cultural movements that happen as well yeah um i i don't know if i i don't know i i think what he's saying is that the two go together you cannot have one without the other the destruction uh, yeah but of the I, I don't think world. he's just saying that because he sees the gendered world as a limitation on avarice and on envy which he thinks are necessary to um i mean i think they both wear each other down is what well for sure but i guess there's a certain starting place for him which is that if you want well, let me read this next part because it'll make more sense. So he okay. says, pre-capitalist societies are based on gender. Subsistence is a neutral term for this gendered survival. The shift to capitalism coincides anthropologically with the decline from broken gender into the regime of sex. That, let's not go into that real quick. But uh, he says, societies in which the reign of gender has broken down are capitalist. Their genderless subjects are individual producers. Uh, curiously, this decisive transformation has not been identified as the crucial anthropological condition that accounts for the transition from pre-capitalist economies to the growing commodity dependence for everyday needs called capitalism. Okay, what I want to point out is that he's given a definition here. What is capitalism? It is the growing commodity dependence for everyday needs. Mm -hmm. So what he means is we went from a world in which people could survive and live and even thrive by working, 
and and enjoying the goods of the earth to a system in which survival increasingly, so it's kind of a sliding scale, is dependent on working for the sake of money mm-hmm. to translate that money into commodities that you mm-hmm. buy from other people mm-hmm. in order to survive. So it's a difference in where survival comes from. Right. If survival within the Middle Ages was predicated on the fact that you owned enough land to take care of yourself, which was called subsistence. So if a subsistence economy was the basic way we could describe most organization of human life, and certainly it's there in the Middle Ages, then the transition is the destruction of the subsistence economy to a system in which survival is purchased. So mm-hmm. you can see how necessity, the necessity of wage labor on the one hand, so you have to produce money, and production or commodity production on the other hand. So you have to produce things as commodities. That's to say things that are available through money. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this for him is just what capitalism is. Again, if you disagree with the definition, that's fine. I'm just saying that obviously he's right. That did happen. We have gone to that. I mean, I don't know if how you feel, but it seems to me pretty apparent that I need commodities to survive. And yeah. <laughs> that seems to be the world that we've lived in for yeah, a while if you now. Don't, yeah, if, if you don't have a wage job, you're you're dead. Mm-hmm. Or you're, oh, never mind. I was going to make a, a <laughs> landlord joke, but that's fine. Um, so. Well, some something else that I wanted to point out about that, maybe just another way of really saying the same thing. Um, and these were notes that I was taking at the the bottom. So this this historical economic shift, which definitely happened, which is like in between, there was this this like kind of broken period, yeah. Um, where you kind of have overlap, but this gradual shift. Uh, if we want to look at what are its markers, what is it marked by? Um, and so he's saying that it's marked by this transition from subsistence living to mm-hmm. dependence on wage labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what we would call capitalism. I, I mean, I, I, I think it makes sense to use that word too, um, because what we're emphasizing is like capital is the fact that you're depending more on money itself and that kind of wealth um and so yeah what i what i hear often is that people talk about capitalism being marked by a free market like what it means to be capitalist is to have the free market um yeah totally but but you find free markets before this giant shift so that can't be the marker of the giant shift if it existed beforehand often and yeah everywhere. i mean if all you mean by a free market is the lack of state intervention within trading yeah that's then obviously always been around we've had that because we haven't always had states so yeah. <laughs> by definition um we've had trading without state intervention right so, so you just need a different marker and i think yeah. that this one is the obvious one that makes sense i'm gonna read a few more things that helps define his his critique here which is really powerful which is that you have got to destroy the kind of self-limiting worlds of gender in order to have the theoretically limitless world of capitalism. Um, again, you can see this sort of thematically. Like, obviously, if capitalism has as one of its goals profit, so just the production of an indefinite amount, this is distinct from the goal of subsistence, which mm-hmm. is a definite amount, like what is needed to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and so gender, because it is a limitation within the world, becomes an enemy, as it were, of the goal, at least, of capitalism, right? So if gender says... Um, women can do this, but 
cannot do that. Men can do this, but only on these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a n- natural and, and, and ingrained cultural resistance to getting everyone to work to make as much money as possible, getting everyone to buy similar things that are all produced as commodities. Um, this is obviously the history of our society in which there are fewer and fewer things besides bathrooms, um, which cannot be sold equally to men and women. So you can see this as like an expansion of, of, a, of a market um, into gendered worlds. He describes this a little. He's talking about a, a book Fernand Braudel wrote where he says um, – he calls him an economic Bruegel, which is a compliment if you've <laughs> ever heard one. He depicts a vast canvas of uh, – so he's talking about um, prior to the – Prior to this shift, he says he depicts a vast canvas of material, institutional, and political life. He brings to life a post-medieval Europe teeming with fairs, markets, and workshops, expanding trade routes and associations. Throughout, he underscores the fact that what he calls capital, capitalist, capitalism, only very slowly penetrates into the procurement, production, and exchange of primary necessities. So this is a just important, like, subsistence was ground down. The gender domains was, were ground down. This is not like a mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're gone. Right. This author carefully searches for the changes that might explain this penetration and the reasons exponential capital accumulation became a factor affecting the everyday existence for most people before the beginning of the 19th century. He identifies growing market dependence, legal conditions protecting long-range accumulation, overseas expansion of economic space, da-da-da. But he consistently overlooks the universality of gendered existence in pre-capitalist societies and the loss of gender in the transition to capitalism. So this is Illich showing his cards a little bit, saying like, look, I know all of these things that go into capitalism. Mm-hmm. Like, I know all of the historical conditions that sort of combined in order to create the possibility of societies that were driven in, in the main by accumulation. Mm-hmm. I know. But gender matters like you had to get rid of this as a limiting factor on the drive for accumulation on the description of the human person as an individual just pursuing uh, sort of endless profit money um and so he gives a example that i really want to read um to try and give some life to this shift mm-hmm. to this change Oh, yeah, this he, is it's brilliant. It's a, a, Lutheran, a Lutheran village in Württemberg bears witness to the reactions of men and women faced with the first imposition of genderless work. So I'll just read it because it's great. 173. Between 1800 and 1850, the unusual number of four dozen divorce proceedings were recorded in Württemberg. David Sabian has tried to interpret the grounds given for the dissolutions, grounds unlike any adduced in earlier times. To understand what had occurred, he had to consider the economic transformation of the region during this period. A railroad was being built, tenancy was being altered, and most of the families were being forced from homesteading, that's subsistence living, toward producing cash crops from fruit trees, that is to say, making money and buying commodities for their survival. Mm -hmm. Plum and apple orchards, together with large-scale production of sugar beets, replaced diversified farms and kitchen gardens. Putting in and harvesting the cash crops proved to be more labor-intensive than homesteading had been, and the change occurred in one generation. Women were suddenly forced to join men in men's work in order to earn enough family income to buy what had formerly been grown in the garden plot. They were also forced to work more and faster in the kitchen. 
The divorce proceedings reflect how deeply disturbing these innovations were for both men and women, how helpless each felt, how unable to understand the implications of their seemingly rational decisions. Women complained that men suddenly ordered them around at work, a totally new experience for them. No matter how much the gender-defined work of women might seem subordinated to that of men, the notion that men could direct women in the work itself had so far been unimaginable. Women resented the loss of domain. Women also complained that while men had time after working at the rhythm of the plow to relax at the inn, they had to hurry back and forth between the hoe and the kitchen. Envy of a new kind, envy for the other's other genders schedule and rhythm thus appeared an envy destined to remain as a central characteristic of modern life an envy fully justified under the assumptions of unisex work but unthinkable under the shield of gender the men on the other hand regularly complained that their women were inferior to their mothers formerly their diet had been rich and varied now they had to eat spitzly i will say <laughs> day after day the curtain closed on an epoch of broken gender and conjugal co-production. In this microcosm, we see vividly how the new script for the industrial age was to be written. For the drama to live and move, the stage had to be peopled with heterosexual actors who were also economically neutered workers. There. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, it, it's funny reading that. So, I mean, it's a, like a historical narrative of an event that happened in one generation, mm -hmm. but it it sounds like what's still happening today. Totally. It just yeah. sounds so normal. Um, especially the line where uh, he writes, women complained. Wait, no, 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 no. Um, how, how helpless each felt, how unable to understand the implications of their seemingly rational decisions. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's us today. Like, we're all trying to make rational decisions and everyone feels equally helpless. Like, well, why isn't my rational decision working out? Because, I mean, these people are making rational decisions. We need to survive. Mm -hmm. We need this money to survive. And why is it that when I make this rational decision, it's just seeming to make me resentful? Right. And, and destroy a marriage, right? Destroy mm -hmm. fundamentally the dance between the two that had been all but presumed prior. Um, yeah, it does seem like a unwritten history. I don't think Illich is being, is like over-exaggerating in that regard. Um, and what, what this shows is that you can't have, um, I mean, when he talks about the way that we went from homesteading to producing cash crops, this is just to reiterate, I mean, the homestead, by definition, has its limit and thus is proper to gendered worlds, right? Because you can say, this is the kind of life that we want. Not that you actually phrase this to yourself, but you yeah. are working on getting what you want, surviving, living, thriving, enjoying. Mm -hmm. And you do so in a world which is fundamentally full of responsibilities, but they're between mm -hmm. you, people you know, God, the land. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain constancy within those personal relations. Whereas the production of cash to then purchase commodities is not under those same restrictions. I mean, someone can change how much something costs. Someone can change how much you get paid. Right. The availability of uh, land is scarce now, right? So you're, you're not able to say, I'm going to produce these vegetables myself, right? Um, and 
I think it's important to remember that when Illich is talking about gendered worlds, he's talking about people having domain, authority, rule um, over that process by which we subsist. He's not talking about like a CEO position mm -hmm. over the process by which we make cash. He's saying that there was there was genuine authority for women and there's genuine authority for men. And for the first time, he's arguing, women experienced a loss of authority. Mm -hmm. Now this seems really, really like current to me in that women often are told, it seems, that what they need is equality, right? But what they never get is authority. Mm. So yeah. they're always given, or the attempt is always made at least, to give them the same thing that men have. But there's not a domain which is their domain. This is the flip side, right, of the kind of repulsion we have towards any sense of like women belong in the kitchen, right? Because on the one hand, if it's coming from a unisex perspective, then it always sounds like a male is saying, go to your place, which is the kitchen, which is like a geographically isolated right. realm, which you are not allowed out of, right? Mm -hmm. But if we consider it as a domain where there's authority, then it's the woman who is able to say, get out of my kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> and that this is actually still the case, I find, within many families is just goes to show that gender doesn't go away. Um, it just is less expressible, I think, within modern societies. That what we do long for is to have genuine authority that people can't take away from us. And that this really is a natural carving out of the world that men and women do as men and women. Yeah, which I, I think it makes sense because uh, if, I mean, I mean, it was specifically a commission to Adam to, to till and to keep, but I think it is uh, the, the human commission to go and to create and to rule. Yeah. Um, and so it means that like women also have a domain to do that. Yeah. And then, yeah, it, it, that was taken away. And then suddenly they're being like, well, I mean, he, he says that the transition is, is broken. You don't immediately go into economic sex. But what happens is that women enter into the men's domain. Mm -hmm. And so they're having this experience of being ordered around like as a man. Right. And I think that's what Illich would describe as like, well, that's sexist. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's, I mean, you, you can see, I, I, I can see how, how people today will look back on the past and totally miss that this change has happened yeah. um, because it's just so, so different than anything yeah, that we totally. would conceive of today. Oh, I mean, you see it right now. If you ever describe something as like, well, the men worked in the fields and the women stayed at home you're inevitably assuming it's oppression. Mm -hmm. And also that's how we actually describe pre-modern societies, which is ridiculous because they all went to the fields. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, there, there's a complete loss of understanding the world as bifurcated between realms of authority that are not in some kind of antagonistic relationship with each other, but in fact, precisely as authority, they're enjoyed. Yeah. Domain is enjoyed. Yeah. And I liked, uh, I'm trying to find where else he says this. Um, that there, there still is a subordination of the women's domain to the male domain. Um, and even the way that that dance is done is different between societies. Um, so that, that is going on. 
Um, but it's not as if the women don't actually have authority within their domain. And in fact, like they have more leverage against the male domain. Like if they, if, if men, like if a man chooses to act in an unjust manner towards a woman, she now has like this network, (laughs) like this whole domain by which to like correct and shame this man, which he's already given examples of that in the past yeah which were fun (laughs) yeah no it just seems impossible now though um okay so what else um oh yeah uh he he gives some reasons as to why there was this blind spot that were really interesting this is on the next page 175 Oh yeah. Um, like why why is it that no one has seen that this enormous shift has happened? Um, he says two reasons. On the one hand, the new experience of economic misery became the glue of proletarian unity. Mm-hmm. So now now there really is a unified experience of everyone being miserable. Right. And this is the thing that's bringing us to together um as this this class and then it's kind of moving into like a socialist like attitude of upper class and lower class. Right. And we're all in misery misery in the lower class. Right. And so that becomes the emphasis on how we see the world as being totally broken up it's not in these two domains totally. it's being broken up in the upper class and the lower class yeah it's way more convicting uh given that your misery is now class-based mm-hmm. to say that all of human society is in fact class struggle and not gender right yeah he says all wage laborers suffered from the very same epidemic of disorientation loneliness and dependence so like it like that the the sexless unifi- unification like actually becomes the reality yeah. Right. It actually becomes your experience. And so now we have this this blind spot. Yeah. Um, and then he, he goes on um, to talk about something that we talk about a lot within different fields with New Polity, which is that every society needs its past. So one of the reasons there's a blind spot is because we are actively right. involved in the creation of a past that is not true to the historical narrative, but which justifies and explains our present moment. So the way that Andrew Jones describes this in relation to, and not just Andrew, quite a few people have described this in relation to religion, is that, in fact, if you look at the Middle Ages, you had a unique act, a unique society, in which the society as a whole was conceived of as a church, um, in which there were different powers, there were different emphases, there were different vocations, there's a diversity uh, but which certainly had no concept of like a secular realm defined as something without the church, in which the church was unnecessary, in which God was uninvolved, in which was somehow an irreligious sort of neutral space that may or may not relate to the religious, but in, in itself does not. Um, this is how we now describe the, the world precisely because we have suppressed the church as Mm -hmm. mattering to society as being a politically relevant as being a social a a real story about humanity um through the protestant reformation up into modernity this has been in place so now what we do is we say we look back on the um middle ages on its various structures and we say okay so they have the state and the church just like we did but like it looks like the church has all this power over the state here and we basically describe a past that there's like this nascent secular realm that is going to blossom gloriously into our secular society in which we realize history really is secular and the church is this sort of thing you can do within the secular. Right. Andrew's point is, okay, we're inventing a past here. 
Right? Mm-hmm. This is not how a medieval understands himself. Mm-hmm. This is how we understand medievals right. because of our world. And he's saying, uh, Illich is saying, I think that the same thing is happening with gender. We are rewriting the script, as it were, so that when we look on the past and see gender domains, for instance, we can only describe this as sexism in which women are oppressed to be in some place which modernity will eventually save through mm-hmm. this gradual process of producing equal wage earners. Right. Yeah. And so we look back on that and we say, Oh, uh, men could do this and women couldn't. So, um, what we have here is of course, sexism, early sexism to be resolved by, uh, birth control and other stuff. Right. I think it'd be worth reading the way that he puts it on 176. Okay. The bottom. Um, so he writes, society needs a past to have a sense of the present. The living require a past that fits them. There is no first person plural, no we without its myth of creation. The two gendered we of all times was kept alive by each society's rituals, feasts, and, and taboos. Industrial society too needed a myth of creation. It could not exist without one. So it created a special institution to provide each household with news and a constant sense of a past. The past became an industrial enterprise. Um, And then later on the next page, he says, uh, which is basically what you're saying, Mark, powerful enterprises attempted to make the past appear as a seed, a primitive form of the present. Um, Yeah, so if what men and women really are, are like these genderless powers, these genderless humans, um, then that's inevitably true of the past as well. So the way that we describe what was going on in the past necessarily shifts. Uh, The myth, the story itself shifts. And I I don't think this is... um, I mean, like maybe it sounds like like a critique or a bad thing, but I mean, this is just true like if you if when you believe new things the meaning of the past changes and sometimes this is like an actual needful thing like you can imagine like you have a relationship with someone and then you find out that they've been lying the whole time suddenly like the interactions that you had like legitimately meant something but now that you know something true that was true from the very beginning it changes the whole narrative of what was happening shoots an arrow into the past Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if we if we come up with a new anthropology, it's not like uh, it, w- it would be only natural that we would rewrite the past because it actually changes its meaning. This is just yeah. how it works. Yeah, and he he points to Marx and Freud as two people that are actively and in an early way engaged in redescribing man to fit the mm-hmm. destruction of gender. So you can't describe man as a asymmetrical being that's always there's always two sides to everything. Everything is up against um, uh, its complement or its opposite. Um, instead, you have to have a fundamentally a fundamental sameness um, as the defining characteristic of man. And so, with Marx and Freud, it's um, man considered as a conduit of capital for Marx, and man considered as a conduit of libido for Freud. In both cases, there's a genderless um, reality that explains human behavior so we can say men or women whatever you're all going to do this because capital Mm -hmm. is king men or women whatever you're all going to do this because libido is king Mm -hmm. um he says it well he says um 
Marx and Freud forged the def definitive concepts that would be used to describe and orchestrate the new kind of actor industrialized man. 700 years earlier, the church had imputed genderless sin to genderless souls. Now the genderless power of genderless humans in a genderless cosmos became the key transcendental characteristic of the categories used in a new kind of metaphysics. Around the middle of the 19th century, a dozen natural scientists simultaneously through independently, uh, though independently, redefined the living the force of the universe as energy, sometimes bound, sometimes free. Then says that labor force was made into a key concept by which the human contribution to human existence could be treated as a scarce resource. Again, genderless, sometimes bound, sometimes free. Finally, a generation later, Freud uh, attributed psychic energy in the form of libido, sometimes bound, sometimes free, to the human. The new canonists, canonists fabricated their theory of secular man and his salvation on assumptions derived from chemistry and fluid mechanics. They claimed to find a genderless power that, as capital, circulates through social conduits and as libido through psychological channels. Um, and he makes fun of he makes fun of this later because then we look back on the past and we write about he says we we report on the sex life of Mesopotamia, <laughs> and laughs at that because it's like when well, we read that and then just presume that everything we experience is what was experienced through all time. Um, right. So. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I like that he points out um, is that his goal of this book mm -hmm. um, is just to call attention to this huge divide of gender and sex yeah. like he's not claiming to write this giant historical narrative all he is he's pointing out is that hey there was a major shift that we're all overlooking and he's tried to expose the counterfeit genealogy of sex that underlies economic history or in other words like okay so now we've we've made this assumption of economic sex and so then if you're trying to explain how we got here you're going to use this genealogical critique that rewrites this narrative of how we got here, and he's trying to expose it as counterfeit because it doesn't actually comprehend the past, mm -hmm. um, which is awesome. And it definitely seems true. Like, mm -hmm. just applying sexism to the past doesn't seem to work. Yeah, no. Um, you really liked the quote mm -hmm. on 178, and I feel like I can't take it from you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Under the reign of gender, right? Right. Um, I'll just start at the beginning of the... Where do I... Well, no, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll set it up a little bit. Um, so what he's doing at this point is kind of recapping, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, the reign of gender and economic sex in some ways. And he describes each of them as uh, matrices. Like they're each, each is a matrix, right? It's a social structure of like power, of domain, etc. So um, he says, whether they are born outside the matrix of gender or first delivered from and then educated into the matrix of sex, uh, women must face men. Each matrix, however, endows them with different relative power. And that's basically what he's been out to like show like here's how each of these matrices work yeah. here's how the power is distributed under the reign of gender men and women collectively depend on each other their mutual dependence sets limits to struggle exploitation defeat vernacular culture is a truce between genders and sometimes a cruel one uh, where men mutilate women's bodies the gynoceum is I think how you pronounce it, uh, or just like the women's domain, often knows excruciating ways to get back at men's feelings. 
um, in contrast to this truce, the regime of scarcity, or which is this move into economic sex, imposes continued war and ever new kinds of defeat on each woman. Okay, so we could just pause there because... Uh, one of my favorite lines showed up. So, so one of my major critiques reading this book is that um, when he looks back on like the the matrix of gender or the reign of gender, uh, he never seems to critique it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It always seems to be like this this like natural ideal. And then here, for one line, <laughs> he admits for the first time that sometimes vernacular culture it's a truce between genders and sometimes it's a cruel one. Sometimes the construction can actually be a cruel construction. And I wish he would have gone into more detail on this. I think it would have been a lot more convincing probably for his readers and the people that he's trying to convince. Um, But it just gets a line. (laughs) Yeah. And um, he goes on while under the reign of gender, women might be subordinate. Under any economic regime, they are only the second sex. They are forever handicapped in games where you play for genderless stakes and either win or lose. Here, both genders are stripped and neutered. The man ends up on top. Um, which is just a really clear way of explaining his thesis. Yeah. That um, you, you can have uh, subordination. You can have women being told what to do in certain respects. But what you don't have is the total loss of domain, mm-hmm. the total loss of any authority, the entrance of women into a, a supposedly unisex world that has actually taken its cue from the male industrial worker, and then the constant loss um, of women within that world. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think the key uh, word in in one of that one of the sentences is. Uh, while under the reign of gender, women might be subordinate. Mm-hmm. Uh, under any economic regime, they're only the second sex. Yeah. So you could conceive of a gendered domain where the dance is done differently. Yeah. Or he pulls out some extraordinarily rare examples of matriarchal societies. Yeah. How is it that you had these very strict gendered worlds, which we would just immediately dismiss as sexist, but you can't because... It's matriarchal. Right. Um, they're still operating kind of out of the same system. Just the dance is done differently. Yeah. And you can make arguments that this is not a very good dance. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but it explains how that could be the case and they're still operating under the same yeah. principles. And then he goes on to say um, that basically like like the woman kind of discovers herself as like invisible <laughs> Um, she can neither perceive herself in the regime of economics as an equal partner, nor can she recognize herself in gender. So once we've moved into economic right. sex, she she can't compete um, and win in the same way that a man can, again, because she can get pregnant. Yep. Um, of, she can't make as much money if she's having the babies. Mm-hmm. Um, but she doesn't have a gender domain where she can recognize herself either yeah he has so this, she just loses he has this just brutal line the sexist utopia of her land fails to provide the rank consolations of the locker room <laughs> and attempts to reconstruct women's past with keywords um yeah so yeah i think we all know what that means at this point like the 
women get to live essentially a fantasy of a never arriving end to sexism. You get to watch movies where women are superheroes that can do super cool things. Mm -hmm. You get to theorize about a feminist future that somehow never arrives. My favorite thing is whenever they're like the male birth control pill, it's coming this year and it's, they've been doing it since like the seventies. It's just it's almost no, on its, its way. Uh, it's it's almost on come. its way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this, like you get women don't get actual equality. They get the fantasy of a future equality that never arrives. Um, and then this is compared to a world in which they were supposedly oppressed, but, but, but in which Illich is saying, no, 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 you might've been contingently subordinated. There might've been cruelty, no doubt. But the idea that as woman, you were defined as the loser is not true. The idea that as woman, you are defined as lacking in authority and domain, not true. The idea that as woman, you have no comparable experience of real community that men enjoy in the locker room and mm -hmm. elsewhere, uh, not true. You did. You lack these things because something real has been destroyed and you are being made to compete for something posing as a neutral unisex work, which is actually in the image of the male which is actually a, uh, the work of people who can't get pregnant. <laughs> yeah. um, that's what's really happening. And that seems to be totally accurate, whatever else you think about Milch's um, book here. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that the, the insight of what has been lost and what it means to live in a gendered world is really uh, enlightening. And especially the, the example that we read of what happened within the generation of that one Lutheran town was just extremely yeah. illuminating yeah for what exactly has happened um which kind of leads into my my last point <laughs> um take it away yeah uh this is maybe my second favorite line in the whole book on page 179 i have no strategy to offer <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh maybe i shouldn't get that excited <laughs> about that but i i just appreciate his honesty that he's not sitting there from like this idealist perspective like and here's how we can reconstruct yeah the gendered worlds like he realizes what an enormous project that would be and part of the reason why it was around is because it was something organic and you can't manufacture that and if we tried to do that we would just fail oh totally because the trads try to do it all the time. They're like, I can reconstruct a gendered world, no problem. It's like, ah, it just it just it doesn't it doesn't work because what it means to have a gendered world is to like fit within a social whole, and yeah. so you're doing it in a very disjointed kind of manner. Yeah, um, yeah, like it, it doesn't compete with the past, um, and maybe that's kind of a, a cynical view. But I I have a theory that cynicism is really hopeful <laughs> um and that like it, it realism itself is is uh a, a hopeful thing because um like n now we kind of see where where the cards are out in the sure, table yeah yeah um and we can see what's what's possible yeah and we because we we don't have unrealistic expectations of how we're going to change everything and bring back the gendered worlds, yeah. which you can't as a singular person, you can't as a singular household. I mean, you can make better moves and that's important and it's going to make your life happier yeah. for sure. 
But then there's a lot less pressure on yourself. Like, I thought I was doing the things right. I mean, I, I see that yeah. sometimes happening in, like, Catholic marriages. Like, I thought yeah. I was doing this thing yeah. right, but I'm still running into all these difficulties. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I was living authentic femininity, but I'm still lonely. It's Yes. <laughs> well, I do think there's a little, maybe not more hope than you're giving it, but if, if Illich is right that it's so tied to capitalist society, especially in terms of, dependence on commodities um for survival mm -hmm. then there is a kind of reverse engineering trick that you know if you just destroy capitalism then you produce gender and mm -hmm. i don't mean this sort of in the cynical like socialist way because socialists are just capitalists um mm -hmm. i mean it in the sense of like a return to any kind of subsistence um and again not trying to be an idealist here it's just like okay when when the question is, how do we make money in order to buy the commodities we need to survive? Obviously, everything falls into place as the same um, regime of economic sex that we've been discussing. But the moment you're like, okay, honey, let's have a garden together and let's not just have it as like the um, the kind of romantic thing that we do on the side. So it's really a luxury activity that we provide for on the basis of wage labor so that economic sex produces the appearance of gender that we kind of LARP on the, on the weekends <laughs> over. Um, but let's actually depend on it, right? Let's get to a point of, of where we are depending on ourselves and not money for subsistence. And not, I say the broad ourselves, like the community as well. Um, then there's a certain argument that it's not that you're constructing a gendered world. It's that a gendered world will happen because it has to. Mm -hmm. Because the actual business, not of making money and spending it, but of living, involves the division of tasks. It involves a choice between men and women about who will do what. It involves many hands in order to make the labor work. It involves, um, it involves those kinds of decisions that will create gendered domains, that will give authority because you're actually owning something. You're actually having realms of activity that you do have authority over. Um, and it has that authority has to go somewhere, either to a man or to a woman. So I do think within a, a household that at, to any degree turns away from a dependence on the consumption of commodities and towards ownership of the means of production and working land and deciding to make things and fix things instead of just buy things and discard things, wherever this happens, you're going to have the tug as it were of the dance between man and woman because you're going to have to figure out how to actually do it yeah and you or... can't just translate it into money meaning that women or man can equally shop you know <laughs> yeah I, w I wonder if it could be even more simple than that because i not everyone's in a position where like, oh yeah they can no do i'm that. not saying it's possible for um, just... and yeah i think actually being totally subsistent and being totally self-sustaining as a homestead is not possible yeah i mean it depends on what um, you mean i think by if you mean like it's not possible without a community doing the same thing and contributing and building up a common good then yeah i agree yeah um but uh what he was pointing out in the book is what having the gendered worlds did was it it put limits on things sure um, and maybe that's the frame of reference that we can have. And I, I think this is kind of a new polity thing in general. And this is why I, I've enjoyed discussing this book in particular, because we're starting 
I, I think it highlights how all of these things really go together. Um, like a topic that seems like not political yeah. <laughs> at first, except for like in our current moment, yeah. turns out is inherently political because it, it changes how we structure our society. Um, if you are living a life that, um, I mean, so, so what subsistence living is doing is that your goal is not to just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Your goal is not to see the numbers in your bank account just rising, 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 rising. Um, your goal is to like ha have this way of life and to have enough. And once you've kind of hit it, then you're good. I think I think this is an example that comes from something that Andrew's written. I've read a lot of it, so I'm not sure where anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, somewhere he was describing, and this is going to be a really uh, poor rendition of what was going on. You have um, uh, like a move to industrialization happening in the cities. And then you have this uh, small town and you have the, the capitalists uh, coming out and, and like hiring them for wage labor. And so um, they want the farmers to work more. So they say to themselves, well, let's just pay them more money. They'll get excited about getting paid more. Yeah. And so they'll want to work more for us. But the opposite happens because they're still living a subsistence way of life. They're getting paid more. So they're like, awesome. I will work half the hours now. <laughs> yeah. Once you get what you need, you're done. <laughs> yeah. And maybe yeah. like that's the kind of attitude that will kind of bring about the natural dance. Like this is the goal. Like yeah. this is where our needs are. Yeah. And if we're not constantly striving to get more and more better updated commodities, right. um, that's just going to change the the whole dance that your like family is doing, yeah. or maybe your broader community is doing. Right, right. It does seem like you need to desire other people to have authority for any kind of restoration to be possible, which I think is mm -hmm. it may seem like a vague desire, but. I think that most people in America don't have it because we want to be sovereign. We want to have all the authority and we see any absence of it as a neglect of what is owed to us in some way. But the positive desire to not have everything, to not have it all, mm -hmm. seems to be requisite for a gender domain to say like, oh, how good that someone else has domain here and I don't. How good it is to not be here. How yeah. good it is. It's like the flip side of a love of place and a love of people is a love of not every place and not every people and not everything. You know what I mean? Obviously, there's a sort of cosmic way where you, where you can have a sort of all-embracing desire for everything. Um, but I think that's fulfilled in the church. But let's not go there. My point is that <laughs> that the desire for other people to have authority and to give it up so that when you work, you're not working for accumulation, but you're actually working to maintain the domain and authority of women and men. Um, and you're actually enjoying that, that just seems like a requisite. That's very hard for us to inhabit, mm -hmm. to say, okay, how do I live and move in such a way that more people and not less have authority, even authority over me? Um, this is, I think a fundamentally, I, I don't think it's a purely Christian way of thinking, but I think Christianity has given it wings as it were. Like I think in pre-Christian societies, you have this as a sort of limitation principle because excess always produces strife. So mm -hmm. there's a certain like avoidance of, well, let's keep people in their place and keep people doing their thing. So as to not, you know, an excess of accumulation would be kind of disastrous for a small peasant community, for instance. Mm -hmm. But within Christianity, it's actually part, 
can be incorporated into the command to love our neighbors, like so that they can be restored to that Edenic call to till and to keep the garden. Right. Um, and if we have that as an actual Christian motivation to extend authority wherever we see it, then I think we have the requisite attitude for, again, not the solution, not a program, but the requisite attitude for restoring gendered worlds, because then we would rejoice to find that someone has genuine authority over us as mm -hmm. opposed to um, envy it. Yeah, I, I can think of one like helpful example. And, and one of the things I think it's exciting what Illich is pointing out is that the construction can be rendered in different ways. Yeah. So uh, here's one way that I'm seeing it <laughs> um, is in the budget that a couple has. So in America, like you hear like stories of everyone, you know, focused on equality and fairness. And so like, like the couple just like cut their budget in half mm. or like the, the couple, like each of them will go to work and the money that they earn is still theirs. I yeah. mean, they really are just like two individuals kind of in a contractual yeah. relationship monetarily. Yeah. Um, a different example of that would be a homeschool family that I, I know where like the wife is in control of the budget because she's literally running the household. Yeah. <laughs> and so that domain and authority has been officially handed off to her. Um, the husband, like, like you were explaining, like he does not worry about the money. Like he just, he works and he focuses on that. He doesn't have to stress about the budget at all yeah. because he has rendered that domain to her, yeah. the one who's running like the household and getting the food together and like. Right. And it would involve him, I imagine, because I am in exactly the same position in shame, deep shame to try and like insert oneself periodically into that world and to say, you know what I mean? Like it, it would take on the trappings of a real gender transgression to say like. Um, well, show me the books. Are you doing a good job here? Because then you would have completely undermined real authority, and you mm -hmm. would have made it actually authority that's just sort of held out as like a, as like a. Um, oh, it's fictional. It's not real authority. It's just like a delegation of the male thing to a woman, which is yeah. not the same as an actual giving it up. Yeah, and then to kind of tie in what uh, Andrew writes a lot about with um, like the peace of society yeah. or like the peace of the family. So like in this situation. Um, like you have a, a piece of how the household is being run, but then maybe at some point you have like some like obstruction to the piece. Like maybe the wife is irresponsible with the budget or like the man like runs off and like buys something super expensive without running it by her first. Mm -hmm. And so like, like then they, they come together and like, there's a moment of like, con like tension and like working things out so that the peace can be restored and you can go back into your domains again. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's not like a, And it's not like I mean like that's how it's supposed to be yeah, done. It's not like he's transgressing by like bringing up the problem or it's not like she's transgressing like right. by bringing up the problem. Yeah, it's like within worlds that are seeking after peace through subsistence um sin really does disrupt them. And being open to that disruption, like if we are not good to each other, if we are not respectful of each other's domain, if we are not holy and striving after holiness, there will be problems is part of the risk of love. It's the risk of family. It's the risk of Christianity ultimately, which doesn't say like, oh, we have a constitution that works every time. If women do this and men do that, you're good to go. No conflicts. It says, let's live in such a way that if we are not good to each other, we'll feel it. Um, and I, and I see this mm -hmm. in the case of establishing any kind of gender domain in, in, at least in our contemporary situation, 
that when you agree to do that, when you say, okay, you know what, I'm not going to look at the bank account, it's yours. Or you know what, um, the garden's yours, the laundry's yours, the, I don't know, whatever it is, however you do it, mm -hmm. it's this dependence on the other that you establish, which if the other is neglectful or if you are domineering, the mm -hmm. peace will be destroyed. Mm -hmm. It's it's not like you get to, yeah, it, like there's no, there's no safety there. It's risk. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes it so fun and enjoyable. It's like, hey, let's divide up the world between ourselves and enjoy it. And if yeah. we're bad, <laughs> it won't work. That's the risk of goodness, which it seems like every family has the capacity to do. And that alone, I think, would would build up not a gendered world, right? Because that's not, you can't make it this kind of thing that happens within the families. Um, but it would build up something that could become it within mm -hmm. the next generation, right? Mm -hmm. Like if that could become an actual if it could actually involve communal production, if it could actually involve men and women working together as men and women um, on mutual work. Yeah. Well, there's there's one final point that I wanted to say, and I'm glad that you said what you did because I had forgotten it. Um, but I was really excited that he used uh, the word matrix. <laughs> um, it's a like, fine film. I was disappointed oh, yeah. when I watched it. It was so hyped up, and then I finally got around to it, and I was just... Anyway, we won't go there. Um, but I, I like, I like, um, I, I think this is a way of looking at the future with, with hope is like seeing, okay, like what we have right now is like a, like, uh, this like social structure, this matrix of, of power. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like the idealist would say, well, we want to go back to these gendered worlds. This is better. And so then try to like construct this path of like, well, here's how I'm going to get there. Mm -hmm. Maybe just in my life or like, here's the path that society has to take. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not how reality works because as soon as you change the matrix. So let's say that uh, you do have a community where families are like, they've put like a limit. Like they don't want to just accumulate stuff. They're just living for a rhythm of life. Yep. They are living more within the gender domains. What happens is that the matrix, matrix itself shifts. And so it creates um, like new, new power dynamics, new openings that literally did not exist there before right. and maybe ones that you didn't even possibly imagine right. like there's new ways to move in the world that are available for the next generation that just simply weren't there like they were not moves on the table to make right. but now they are and i think that's how change is going to like happen and it's not something that you can totally predict like you want to be aware of what's possible right now and like the the moves that you can be making but as soon as you make one you've shifted the entire yeah. field Right. Um, and I think this too is also exciting, um, and just kind of the work of being a, a, a Christian and the work of constructing the world in general, like the world itself is not predictable. It's not controllable. Yeah. yeah. Um, I find this exciting. Other people find this anxiety inducing. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, uh, it's a surprise um, and anything you do, if you have any kind of desire to change the world, which apparently we all do, um, has to be received by, by children, right? In order for it to persist and you can never guarantee who those people are. Like the very passing down of tradition right. implies a radical letting go of control. Um, 
It doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean like it's destined for failure. It just means it's not centralizable. It's it's a it's an adventure. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think when I look at um, the difference between the gendered world and what follows is that there seems to be a certain openness to surprise and to adventure in the latter or in the former, but not the latter. Um, whereas there's a sort of modern presumption that we've arrived and that we're always going to be doing the same thing, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe a paradox, but anyways, we should stop, I think. So, um, gender, there's the book. It's a great book. What we're going to do next is pretty simple. We're, we're going to, having wrapped up this book, we're going to, um, turn a little bit back to some of the research I've been doing for my dissertation on the early church fathers, um, interpretations of gender, hopefully get to a more positive description of what I think gender is all about in the Bible. And and the reason why I think Illich is a good start to that is because he provides the words for talking about, um, androgyny or genderlessness, um, as a really possible social construction that I think he's describing as this new thing. But um, spoilers, I think, is actually how most human societies end up thinking about the nature of man or woman uh, apart from grace. Um, Not all the time, but it does seem to me that the Jewish people were fundamentally opposed to a strikingly similar concept um, of primal androgyny that seemed to be an anthropology in which gender difference, sexual difference is considered to be a subsequent modification of a fundamentally genderless type. And I do think that's in the church fathers. I think it's in the scriptures. And so I think what we'll do is talk about that, talk about that and then wrap up this season of uh, the politics of gender. Fair. Sweet. Okay. Till next time. Thank you everyone.